Welcome to the Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to the Knowing Podcast. I am Ciel. It is just me here on my lonesome today. And I suppose I'm going to offer a little bit of a pivot, if that's the appropriate word for it. I had, if those of you have listened to the previous episodes, I had mentioned before that I, um, late last year, began receiving very strong sort of insights and messages around the creation of a program that would help facilitate the the soul initiation process that I I do believe that we are going through as a collective right now and and on on individual levels simultaneously. Um, And I was very excited. I suppose I still am excited about that idea. I um, hired an amazing videographer, did like some fantastic photo shoots. Everything felt really, really exciting. And (laughs) I... uh, I get bogged down on the actual delivery process of ideas. I think I'm more of an idea person than an actual execution person when it comes to the digital components of of that sort of process. And um, got all of this recorded, did all this amazing video, and then just felt like, like, I don't know, like hitting some sort of cement wall where it just doesn't make sense in my brain in terms of how you actually turn this into a, a viable offering. And so I've been sitting on this in, with this in the last while and trying to figure out, you know, how best to actually offer these, um, I suppose, teachings and practices and perspectives, uh, those that I have offered in my process and, and journey with my own teachers. And just kind of realized that maybe this is the best place to do it. And maybe this is the best format. And I don't know about you, but I really realized one day that I was like, I don't want to sit down and watch some woman talking at me on a video for hours at a time. I listen to podcasts all the time when I'm driving to work. And and it's a, a really um, accessible way to receive information and, and engage in kind of philosophy for me. And so I thought maybe this is the best way to do it. And so that is what we're going to do. I still have great intentions of um, offering the medicine group that I talked about before. To be completely frank, I, you know, have gone back to school. I'm doing another master's degree and it's way more work than I thought it would be. Plus working full time and having a couple small children and all the other crazy shit that's going on in the world. Um, And so I'm trying my best to figure out time and scheduling and everything else and we'll work on it. But for now, what we're going to do is um, I'm going to continue having conversations uh, with healers and medicine people and and offering those episodes from time to time around the sort of thematic emphasis of this, this season, which is looking at what is healing, what is medicine, what is our relationship to these concepts and processes. Um, and I really, I love this kind of exploration and these ideas, and I, I hope it's interesting to you. So we'll be offering those still. But the what I'm going to do kind of in between and, and weaving along um, this whole next while is break down the process that I was intending to offer as a video course into audio sound bites that are digestible and hopefully meaningful. 
that will arrive um, to you as as both a, a, a long-form soliloquy on my behalf and um, really, I'm so excited about this part. My husband is an unbelievable musician and, and he's been working on kind of um, journey medicine, basically meditation uh, or music, excuse me, not medicine, meditation and journey music. And so we'll be releasing long form mouth talking of me from me. And then you'll also be receiving some some uh, journeys, some meditation practices, guided journeys, guided practices, the ones that have been certainly the most pivotal and formative for me in my path. And it'll come in this beautiful format with amazing music and um, in a hopefully a way that will feel accessible that you can use, you know, many times and come back to as as practice. So I feel very good about this and because I'm sitting in a room by myself um, and I feel that everything around me thinks that it's also a good idea, we're just going to go ahead with it. So I hope that feels good for you. So um, we're going to get right into this because I don't want to take up a ton of your time and I want these, again, to be accessible. I want them to feel meaningful. And this is a a big topic that we're going to be um, sort of breaking apart and really dissecting in terms of um, the approach, the processes, the the goals and intentions of this experience, because um, not to be, maybe I should start off with a more specific uh, articulation of what we're doing. We're talking about the initiation into the soul self. And I know there are a lot of people in the world right now talking about this. And I think that's such an exceptionally exciting thing because it means that I think we're all on the same wavelength in recognizing that um, a lack of initiation into soul, a lack of initiation away from the the uh, pathoadolescent self, as as um, Plotkin, Bill Plotkin calls it, or, you know, our childlike self. And we say that with no judgment. Um, but the civilization that we live in right now has not afforded us or, or I think often has intentionally removed um, the teachings and the processes and the space for us to go through these soul initiations. And where I feel like we are moving to as a collective right now is a sort of, um, it's like life saying, you can't do this shit anymore. And this tends to be the way that initiations often show up in people's lives. And we'll talk about that today. Um, but I do believe that as a collective, the world, uh, the system that we exist within is actually saying that we cannot continue living uh, the way that we are, um, both in relationship with ourselves, with the natural world, with each other, and we're being called to um, to initiate. And so I, I really do think that a lot of people around the world are really feeling this. And thankfully, we do have uh, a very rich history of teachers and lineages and practices that have been uh, preserved throughout time in order to help facilitate these transformations. And so this is my very humble and and sort of singular perspective. And, and I, I want you to receive it as, as I offer it in that this is not the absolute truth. This is not the only path to um, your initiation to your soul self, to God, whatever we want to call it. But it is the path that makes the most sense for me and has been profound and transformative in my own personal experience. And I just hope so dearly that it will offer some sort of support for you. So 
So we're going to talk about initiation. We're going to talk about this journey, why it happens, when it tends to happen, what is needed during it, what the goals are, again. Um, and this is going to be spread out over many, many episodes and will include many, many practices. So, so yeah. So our world, as it stands right now, I think is, uh, we could all probably recognize, is largely dominated by the um, functionality, the mechanisms and the perspectives and needs of the ego self. And the ego self is the the early identity self that we form when we do not have the agency or the self-reflective capacities to be able to say, no, this is who I really am. We form the ego identity um, based on the mirroring and the reflection and the feedback and, and support or lack of support that we receive in our early life. And so the ego identity is a constructed idea of self um, that has to occur in our early experience, and all of us do it. Um, but it is an incomplete uh, assessment or, or expression of the authentic self. There are some things within it that are true and authentic, for sure, but a lot of it is not true or not really aligned with the soul self. And the traditional wisdom is that Life, um, when we transition from childhood or adolescence into adulthood, uh, life will try to wake us up. And, and the way that it wakes us up is we may have, you know, a trial or a tribulation or some challenge that comes, a sickness, an illness, um, you know, relationship breakdowns, difficulties. And it's not punishment, you know, life doesn't do this because it's trying to hurt us. It's trying to, again, call our attention, you know, bring consciousness into our experience so that we look at ourselves, at our behaviors, at our relationship with life, um, and we we transform. We transform from a, a, a childlike self who defines themselves by the way that the world around them treats them um, to someone who defines themselves through their internal means and their, their integrity, their impeccability is the words that we use in shamanic practice. Now, I think if you look at uh, traditional indigenous cultures, they they knew that this transformation needed to happen in order for the person to, you know, really come into their their place, to abide in their unique um, uh, niche within the ecological you know, system, basically. You know, and again, this is an idea from Bill Plodkin that I so appreciate, um, and I, I guess it's something that I know intuitively is that. As, as a biologist, within the ecological, any ecological system, all organisms have a very specific place that they are supposed to abide in, whether, you know, it's a particular set of branches that a certain bird will live in and it eats a particular bug and it, you know, does, or a particular seed. And, you know, the human brain, I think most likely is a product of the Enlightenment era and, and Darwinian sort of philosophies towards evolution, um, looks at the world as a competitive system and thinks that, you know, the, that's the way that ecological systems work is it's all based on competition and, and comparison and fighting for space. But I think this is a very misguided way of um, conceptualizing of ecology. And I think Plotkin would agree and a lot of, you know, Gaian philosophers would also agree that uh, that's not the way that life works. There's actually a space for everything in the world. And there is a unique space for me in this world where nothing else can occupy that is my soul space. It's my my ecological soul niche. And, 
you know, our, our ancient indigenous traditional societies recognized that they, because I think they, they, I'm quite certain they lived in a fluid and, and relational kind of experience with the environment around and within them and knew that a human being was was kind of just like a, a chickadee or a salamander in that it needed to find its place in the world. And so in order to facilitate the initiation process, rather than waiting for life to come and, you know, hand us something really difficult, they would actually do, you know, initiation rites during uh, early adolescence or early adulthood where people would have to go and do excruciatingly hard trials, you know, f days without food and water or um, journeys through very uh, inhospitable terrains or, or sort of dangerous environments. And it would be to to get the person to kind of draw into themselves, to find their inner reserves, to figure out what their relationship with fear is and um, enhance their internal clarity. I, so many things that would come out of these initiation rites, but fundamentally what was happening was the person was growing up really, truly, spiritually growing up and coming into a, an authentic expression of self. And we've lost this, right? These, th these initiation rites don't happen. And, and we're going to get into a little bit more of, of why I think we don't have soul uh, initiation happening in just a moment. Um, but the loss of this is that we stay in a pathoadolescent state for our entire lifetime, potentially, always thinking that our identity is based upon something that's occurring outside of ourselves, whether it's someone else's approval, or our material gains, or our status in society. And surely you can see this as clearly as I can, that this is what's governing our world. And it, it you know, perpetuates a, a chronic state of anxiety in individuals all the time because they're seeing the world in this competitive sort of framework or through this competitive framework and thinking that, you know, it's all about struggle. It's all about fighting people and, and all about us versus them and, and, you know, that we never get to really relax into our own being. And so... I do think that life is saying that we don't get to keep doing this anymore because we're, we will destroy ourselves and we will destroy the planet. And the mythology of the, the world that we have existed in, it doesn't work anymore. In the same way that the mythology of a child's experience doesn't work when they're an adult. And we have to update that um, system, that operating system. And so that's what initiation is really all about. We move from adolescence into authentic adulthood. And as we do that, you know, we claim um, power, as we call it in the shamanic tradition. We're not, I, I may talk about this a little bit later in the episode, but power, this is not conventional kind of contemporary understandings of power, but soul power, which is, is really more about alignment, okay? Um, but moving into true adulthood, we claim authentic responsibility, and this is a tricky one, right? It's just actually determining what is our responsibility. And again, we're going to break this down um, later on. We claim an authentic sense of freedom, not an externally mediated or externally dependent idea or experience of freedom where it's not about, you know, the world is doing what we want it to do or not doing what we don't want it to do, but really an internal freedom that um, is sometimes called mastery within the shamanic tradition where we 
we're never different. We can be in any circumstance and we are the same person no matter what's going on. Um, that's our, our adult self. There's, there's ease in that state, in the state of mastery. And this also, you know, contributes to and, and emerges from practicing fearlessness. You know, fearlessness creates freedom. Freedom creates fearlessness, right? They, they are a sort of um, self or a feedback cycle. And ultimately, all of this, you know, our work with growing up, um, coming into our adulthood, claiming our power, claiming our responsibility, claiming our freedom, claiming our fearlessness, leads us to understanding our medicine. And that's the bigger goal, I suppose, through a shamanic lens, through the lens that I operate with of all of these practices, is that when we stay in a competitive frame of mind and we view the world as competitive, everybody loses Everything loses because we're not showing up with the gifts and the talents and the medicine and the perspectives that is needed. It's like if you had an ecological system and everything in that system decided that because the wolf is the apex predator of that system, everyone wants to be the wolf. Okay, so everyone's trying to be the wolf and no one's being themselves. The system fails because the the system lacks all the other beings you know who who are contributing their unique parts um to the the entire system and it, it can't work like that you know and and i think that the human civilization has has you know sort of relatively lost the plot in terms of our relationship to self and and how we are meant to manifest ourselves in this world and express ourselves in this world and and it's a tragedy because we're so busy worrying about what people think of us or you know trying to compare ourselves to other people that we're not inhabiting and carrying through us that medicine that spirit is has given to each of us and I I know this to be true without a doubt and and we're actually going to talk about beliefs and sort of formative philosophies today in this episode and that's what I would offer, you know, is that I really am absolutely certain that each of us has an, a vital role to play in the unfolding and the healing of the world. And we can only access this if we are willing to go through our initiation processes um, and emerge on the other side with a, a full understanding of who we are, what our responsibilities are, uh, what our wounds are, and, and how our medicine th flows through those wounds. So... Um, ultimately, and, and maybe, you know, there's a saying in shamanic medicine that you have to trick people onto this path because it sucks. It's like, you know, you, you go through all of these trials and, and growing up is hard. Again, you know, this is why indigenous cultures were like, okay, let's just give them a spear and throw them out into the woods because this is, this is going to be, you know, faster and easier. And when I worked with a a Haida teacher, he'd always threaten that he was going to drive up um, from the coast and pick me up and drop me off in the woods for four days. And I, I'd get all freaked out that he was actually going to force me to do this. But, you know, the the extended period of initiation, I think it's, you know, way worse than just ripping the Band-Aid off and going out into the woods. Probably I'm chicken shit and I, I'm not quite ready for that, maybe. But, um, but when, when initiation, you know, arrives at our door, you know, it's, it's not a it's not a pleasant process, right? The, the, the ego suffers through this process because the ego um, has this idea that it, it knows 
truth. It knows reality. It, it knows how to gain control and maintain control in our lives. And it doesn't give up easily, right? And and the pain really is is within us, you know, and, and it's not something happening to us. It's the pain of reckoning with our own being. But it is painful, you know, and it's exceptionally hard. And so, uh, you know, historical teachers have said that um, you have to trick people onto this path. And, and uh, this is me being as tricky as I can be, is that I'm, I'm just going to put it out there that on the other side of your initiation, not only will you gain an awareness of your medicine and know your gifts and be able to give them to the world, but you will also feel like you belong here in this, in this environment, with this planet, with these species, you will feel a quality of um, attunement, of familiarity, of um, connection, and interdependence that is, it's worth everything. It's worth the whole process of going into the self and navigating these very difficult experiences and, and calling ourselves to task and, and really growing up as individuals. But I promise you it is worth it. And so that's me tricking you on the path um, and, and saying that there's, there's gold at the end of this massive storm and crazy rainbow that'll happen at the end, okay? So... So again, what we're going to be doing here, practices, perspectives, philosophies, we're going to be looking at what kind of capacities we have to develop as individuals to navigate this path well. Um, and I'm going to be offering as much support as I possibly can. As I have offered on previous podcasts, and please, I, I don't put this out lightly. However, I do apologize that I often don't get right back to people. So, um, But please, if you have any questions, if there are things you'd specifically like me to sort of uh, attend to or um, speak to, send me a message. You can reach me at ciel at cielgrove.com um, or you can find me at cielgrove on Instagram. And I try my best to stay on top of things, but I freaking hate social media. Like I really, I don't know how people do it, but um, I try. So, so please reach out along this path. If you have questions, I really appreciate the, the very organic um, opportunity to navigate uh, what someone is going through in their own personal experience, because if it's relevant for you, it is most certainly relevant for a lot of other people. So please reach out. So. So we're going to just spend a moment to talk about what I consider to be the major blocks of initiation. I've, I've mentioned that our civilization really um, has lost this. I think this, this, I don't believe that there's some cabal of, of lizard people sitting around in the room, like wondering how they can really fuck human beings up. Um, I think this is, uh, it, it's like an... It's a distortion, I believe, that started happening in our minds. I'm, as I've disclosed before, I'm a great fan of uh, Ian McGilchrist and his perspectives on the sort of hemispheric development and processes that go on in our human brains. And and he suggests that you know at some point, the the minds of I think especially Europeans started to shift to a very dominant left hemispheric functioning. And the left hemisphere, it it wants to manipulate and control the world. And it should be um, sort of responsive to or responsible to the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is um, the part of our brains that engages with 
the whole world, the whole picture. It, it, it can conceptualize of, of a gestalt of, of the, the big stuff. The left hemisphere is very myopic and very specific and manipulative, and it has ideas about what it wants to do. And and McGilchrist proposes that, you know, something happened where we, we gained a sense of our almost like our power in the world, our ability to manipulate the world. And it it became addictive, right? And then, then we just sort of the left hemisphere just took off and stopped reporting back or looking for direction from the right hemisphere. And I mean, he proposes that this is, you know, we got to get this in check or it's going to kill us because we're not engaging with reality in a functional way or engaging with ourselves or each other. But um, I do think this is sort of quote-unquote natural you know it's a, a mutation an aberration that happened in our brains um it's led to hyper individuation individualization um hyper sort of segregation separation the left hemisphere one of the craziest things to consider about the way that it functions is it it sees the entire world as things separate disparate things and the right hemisphere sees everything as relationships it sees things only as they relate to other things. It doesn't try to break the world apart into separate things. And I think, I hope you can see how a left hemisphere dominant way of engaging with reality um, is, is exceptionally distorting for the way that we relate to the world. This, this hyper-reductionistic form that the, the left hemisphere sort of lens um, creates in the world, right? And I, I this... Um, I think has resulted in a, a deep loss of connection to the world, right? Because um, we see the world as something to be manipulated. We lose, uh, as we lose connection to the world, we lose a sense of our ecological self, the self that is embedded in the environment and, and is interdependent and belongs, right? And something something just went tweaky in our brains and and we started to think no maybe this world is against us and we're against it and this is about domination and control not about inter um interdependence and interrelatedness so the left hemisphere unhinged has i think led to this hyper materialism hyper reductionism um scientism which I personally, I'm going to do an episode on this because it's something I think about a lot right now that I think science is actually, contemporary science, the way that it's being presented right now is potentially the most dangerous thought form and so-called system that we have right now because it purports to be this ultimate source of truth and um, has no humility. I mean, again, I'm going to talk about this on another episode, but it's the left hemisphere. Again, I think unhinged is saying we can find the truth, the absolute truth, and it's a definite truth, and there's nothing mysterious in the world, and we're going to conquer this world and understand everything. And the right hemisphere loves mystery. It's okay with mystery, you know, and we need mystery for change. If we're not comfortable with the idea of, of the unknown, we can't ever actually have anything different than anything that we've already had. You know, it's quite ironic. The left hemisphere can't do anything except perpetuate its own um, sort of pain and, and it tries to manipulate, but it, it doesn't know how to be comfortable with leaping into the unknown, which is always or required for any change process. So again, we're going to break that down on another episode. 
Um, but this has ultimately lost, uh, led to a, a significant loss of meaning, I think, because again, scientism purports or proposes that it can find the absolute truth. There is no great mystery. There's nothing unanswerable. Um, and we lose a lot of magic. I, I think we lose most magic in our world when we, we kind of take that position, loss of spirituality. Um, and science has replaced a lot of organized religions. I'm, I'm not a particularly significant fan, I suppose, of, of organized religions, but I do see their place in the functionality, the functioning of society and, and how important it is in terms of meaning. And so um, many people have spoken to the crisis of meaning that our modern age suffers from. But this I think, keeps us in the path of adolescent self, right? Because we're not being offered a different system that says here is a spiritual process, here is a spiritual um, awakening or journey or an initiatory experience. Um, we're instead encouraged to stay in our, um, what I might call our, our kind of righteous patho-adolescent mind, right? That thinks it knows the truth and it's sorted everything out. I don't know if you've ever met a teenager. I'm sure you have. You've been one. Um, you tend to think you know everything, right? And that's the left hemisphere and, and uh, well, one aspect of the way the left hemisphere functions. So, so the lack of, of um, connection to the world around us, you know, who's to say whether it's uh, came before or after a lack of trust in the world around us, but in, in a, a really... Eh, almost obscene sense of our um, capacity to control life, right? Um, and these ideological frameworks that I would connect with, you know, the idea of transhumanism, which is that, you know, our technology is going to allow us to transcend the realities of the third dimension and all the things that we don't like about it here, illness, death, sickness, blah, 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 down the road, all the things that are uncomfortable and sudden and unexpected, you know, we seem to think that we can control these things, right? And that arrogance, um, I think, is is very misguided, but it also doesn't allow us to have a, a leaping into our next phase of development. And so it, it's understandable because we, we look at the stuff we've done. Like our technology is amazing. It's, it's no doubt that we have this very aggrandized sense of our capacity to influence and affect the world around us because we do. But it's based upon a mythology. Again, the technology is built upon a mythology that says we are um, separate from the world and the world is somehow uh, stupid or nonsensical or it, it doesn't have some you know innate intelligence to it. And there's a, a beautiful talk from Alan Watts from the 1960s that I love so much, but he talks about this idea that any um, civilization, any perspective that is built upon the idea that we exist within a system that has no intelligence or, or you know, is, is random and, and needs to be fixed, the only outcome of that it can ever be authoritarianism because it'll just be a, a succession basically of different humans stepping in saying, well, I know how this should look. I know how people should be. I know what's good for people. They should be like this and I'm going to control it like this, right? And, you know, they may think of themselves as a kind of benevolent dictator, but they're still a dictator. And in order to have a functional human civilization, I am absolutely certain we have to have a sense of our belonging with this planet. Otherwise, you know, we're just we're just parasitic in a sense, you know, and, and the, the planet will cast us off at some point. So 
So there's, yeah, I hope that that made sense, but it's it's hard to say, you know, what happened first. Did we gain a sense of our ability to manipulate and then judge the world around us? Or did we, uh, something happen on the planet that made us think that this planet didn't like us? I mean, you know, one could go back to the mythology in the Bible of the flood and understand how, you know, our ancestors were like, holy shit, that was scary. This planet's terrifying. Now we need to go out and try to control it. Maybe that's what led us down this path. Who knows? I do think at the core of this is a trauma that that caused a separation and a freezing of ourselves, as trauma does. But um, either way, we're going to try to unwind it. Okay. So all of this, you know, framework, a way of engaging with the world um, leads us again to a kind of arrogance, right, where we are setting up systems of control and dominion. And this comes out in modern medicine, right, where we decide that things shouldn't be happening when they're happening or that we can control the body and manage it. And it's just this dysfunctional, you know, machine in our reductionist perspectives. And we just need to tweak it. We need to fix it. We know better than this, right? Um, we also, though, there's a couple other things that happen within our society that are very prevalent um, that, you know, we, we naturally have been orienting towards greater ease, greater pleasure, um, less pain, you know, and this is a, it's a biological imperative. All biological beings are driven to avoid pain and move towards pleasure. But there is, in the human being, when we transition into our spiritually mature adulthood, we no longer are held by those same drives for pleasure and to avoid pain. And in fact, we come to know um, suffering, and <laughs> this is me not selling you on the path, but suffering is the thing that wakes us up. It's the thing that unifies us with all beings. It's the thing that it, it creates compassion for us when we have to go through suffering. And we realize in our very mature sort of perspective that suffering, pain is is part of this life, right? Again, transhumanism says we can get rid of pain. I call absolute 100% bullshit because that's impossible. <laughs> and and it, what do we lose when we propose that, you know, again, this world is wrong and bad and we just need enough technology so we can go beyond it is that we we can't ever really belong here and I'm not willing to take that stance um and so you know we we get caught by this drive for pleasure and and everything gets easier and easier and and quite honestly our lives have gotten easier way more fragmented huge loss of society, uh, social connections and sense of belonging you know within the the human world but um, ultimately, like, our lives are really freaking easy right now. And all we do then is complain, quite frankly. And we'll be talking about complaining later on down the path. But um, when you're in that state of, I I deserve, you know, more ease or I, I don't deserve this to be happening in my, in my life, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and move on because, yeah, life is super shitty and horrible things happen. But if we stay in our, our childlike mind, you know, and we are resistant to things as they're happening and saying, no, 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 this shouldn't happen. I want it a different way, right? We, we actually continue to suffer throughout our whole lives because we always are not liking what we get because life isn't, it's not pleasant all the time. It's, it's just life... Is that line from the Princess Bride? You know, um, Wesley says, uh, "Life is pain, Princess," and and anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. And 
here I am trying to get you to come on the path. So I'm saying this path is really fun and it's great and you're going to get amazing things out of it. And also it is pain. And as the first noble truth in Buddhism states, this is life is pain. We have to actually accept the fact that this life has pain. It does not, however, have to have suffering. And that's a big part of growing up is learning the difference between those two and how to work with our own minds so that we can move away from suffering. And suffering is the resistance to what is. Suffering is saying that what is should not be happening, right? And we are actually doubling down on our painful experiences because the original pain is still there and we're enhancing it by saying it shouldn't be here. So, so yes, this this addiction to ease, wanting more pleasure, you know, it's it feels nice, but it's it's not good for us. Okay. Um, the last thing that I want to offer, I suppose, is, and I say this very carefully because again, I am not particularly I'm Buddhist, but I, I suppose I don't really consider that much of a religion so much as a f- set of philosophical kind of perspectives and ways of being in the world as it lacks gods and and kind of um, explorations of of a higher deity or anything. Um, but I do think that there's an impact in all of our psyches uh, from the what I would call the heaven mythology, the idea that either in li- this lifetime or in you know your afterlife experience, if you're a good person, if you do everything right, you're somehow going to get to go to a place where everything's nice all the time. And while I understand completely the inclination to want to believe that, and it, it in a sense, it's like, maybe trying to make the suffering or the pain of, of a human experience make sense or or try to encourage people down a particular path. I think that would be the initial um, instinct or the, the sort of impetus behind framing heaven in that way, like that later you're going to be happy if you just do this well. You know, but we can see this even within our own experience. I think we we have the tendency, I know this for myself and certainly a lot of people that I work with, that we believe that if we just do all the things right, we eat right, we drink right, you know, we sleep right, we, everything's perfect, then everything's going to be good in our life, right? Everything will go well. And and this is a very damaging mythology, I believe, you know, and, and no offense, but I do think it's a fairly adolescent mythology because, again, I think it's a way that we're trying to avoid pain. I think it's a way that we are trying to actually um, get away from the present moment and thinking, well, okay, well, later it's going to be good, right? And again, this is why I suppose I am a Buddhist is because there's there's no such heaven mythology. And we're going to talk about the alternative, what I consider the alternative to the heaven mythology in terms of how we live and how we have integrity and, and practice virtuous acts and, and ways of being in this world uh, in a little bit. But yeah, so that's what I think. That was way longer than I expected. I apologize. I'm such a rambler. It's unbelievable. Um, can you even imagine like living with me? I know my husband's editing this, but like sometimes I, if I wake up too early and he gets out of bed and I'm just like, because there's a lot of things going on in my head all the time. So um, I hope this is interesting for you. And also if if you're like, please, you know, talk less more more specific stuff send me a message about that too i love the negative feedback just as much as the positive <laughs> okay 
So um, I'm going to just offer a little bit of personal background. I know if you've listened to this podcast, um, you'll have heard a bit of my story and and perspectives and experience. Um, I want to offer it here, I suppose, as a kind of um, expression of how would I authenticity, I suppose, so that you feel like I might actually be someone that you wanted to listen to and that I have some validity. I I promise you I am not a, a weekend workshop shamanic practitioner. No offense, go and take weekend workshops. That's wonderful. But um, the, the reality of these processes and these learnings, I mean, after 15 years of study, I know that I know very little. And I'm so excited about the next, hopefully, 50 years of my life where I get to continually enhance my understanding and uh, ways of, of translating this, this work into the world. Um, so I wanted to just give you a little bit of story. I think it also will contextualize the approach that we're taking through these experiences and processes together because, um, as I've mentioned several times, I am uh, very much uh, rooted in shamanism and in shamanic practice. I am an initiated shamanic practitioner in a traditional lineage through a chamacana, a plant medicine woman in Bolivia. And I studied with her for five years. Um, and two of those years before she offered me initiation because initiation into a lineage, and this is different than what we're doing here. We're not doing initiation into this lineage, my lineage or anyone else's lineage. We're doing soul initiation, a little different, a lot different. Um, but she initiated into me into her lineage after a couple years. And um, then I've had several other teachers um, from various other lineages. And I, while I was actually studying with my teacher in San Francisco, I was also doing a master's in integrative healing. And I'm currently also doing another master's in clinical counseling. I have a background in biology. Um, what else? How do I tell you that I'm a verifiable source or, you know, someone that you should trust? Um, yeah, I, I mean, when I studied with my teacher, she used to tell me, and it actually used to make me feel really uncomfortable, but she'd say, at some point, you will create your own modern expression of this lineage because that's what has to happen in all medicine lineages. We can't use the medicine from 2000 years ago and apply it in the contemporary moment um, without updating because it's it's just not entirely um, appropriate or accessible. And so she said that I would create, you know, this sort of next incarnation, next expression of our lineage, which she said, first and foremost, would be rooted in Buddhism. I first came to Buddhism during the middle of what I see now or understand now of the first phase of my uh, initiatory process um, in my early 20s. And Buddhism is very much the, the basis for my approach and how I practice medicine and how I engage with the world, really. Um, and I say this because, or I think it's important, because in the shamanic tradition, um, my teacher is very much rooted in shamanism. And shamanism um, is a beautiful uh, tradition, beautiful set of, of principles and practices, very, very diverse, depending on you know where you are accessing the teachings from. The word shaman comes from the Tunguska people of, of Siberia. So, you know, there's some people that say, we shouldn't use it, but, you know, my teacher was from Bolivia and she used it. Most indigenous healers I know use it or to say medicine person or medicine woman, whatever it is, feels good for you. But shaman translates roughly, loosely as 
um, she who walks in the dark by some people. The shaman is seen as the person who can be serve as the bridge and go between worlds. And they learn these um, amazing techniques of engaging with other dimension, uh, other dimensions, other um, beings, and and you know working within other dimensional experiences on behalf of their clients and and doing certain practices. And we'll get into these a little bit later. But one of the things that doesn't happen in shamanic practice or in shamanic training is that it really does not have much emphasis in many lineages on um, the type of person you are in the world, um, the type of kind of integrity. There's an emphasis on impeccability where you are saying, doing, thinking, feeling all the same thing within the shamanic tradition. But that doesn't ha actually mean that you have to kind of be a, a kind person or a considerate or compassionate person. And so, you know, in, in historically, many um, lineage in many lineages, the shamans would actually live outside of the villages, away from the other people, because they were sometimes tricksters, and they're just doing what they wanted to do. They they were, you know, doing and saying and thinking, and feeling all the same thing, but it wasn't necessarily considerate of the needs of other people. And that is really what drew me to Buddhism, in particular, the Shambhala lineage of Buddhism, which is a Vajrayana, a tantric lineage of Buddhism uh, that emphasizes, um, very simplistically, using life to wake you up, which I think is such a beautiful concept that this is not a, a lineage that um, suggests that you have to go live in a monastery or separate yourself. Some practitioners do, absolutely, but, but that life is offering us the opportunity to wake up all the time. And secondarily, it really emphasizes the um, the path of the bodhisattva, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But the the emphasis um, is on being a compassionate person, and that is the ground of my being. Com Notice I did not say nice. I don't think I'd ever consider myself a particularly nice person, and probably anyone who knows me wouldn't either. Um, but compassion as a principle, and we're going to really dive into this later on, not today, but in another uh, um, session, is 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 this, that's the basis, right? That's that is what then my shamanic practice and initiation and connection is built upon. Okay, so um, then I suppose all of that weaves in with contemporary psychology. Um, I'm very uh, immersed in Jungian perspectives of of um, integration and working with the sub and unconscious and bringing things to the surface and. Yeah, I work with a lot. I'm a herbalist. Uh, I work within a kind of functional medicine framework um, using vitamins and minerals, and that's part of my other master's. So so do you trust me? Just kidding. Um, yeah, I, I hope that makes sense and feels like it's uh, a meaningful background for you to engage with. And again, if you have any questions about you know how I approach this work, um, please let me know. I am not a shaman. And well, I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that. But when I first started studying with my teacher, and this is something that is, is I see in the world all the time, people calling themselves shamans. And that is a title that is reserved for an individual who is given that title by the community that they serve. It is not something we could or ever should claim. It is something that um, is only, I mean, my teacher said 25 years of practice before you are considered a shaman, at least. And, you know, she was seen as a, a healer when she was three. 
um, and taken into training by the Quechua people in, in Bolivia. And, you know, I met her when she was 50 something and she, it, it took her till she was in her forties to achieve mastery. So this is, um, you know, we, we, I think don't have a lot of respect for the lineage when people are saying, or for the, the perspectives of the lineage, when they say they are a shaman, we are shamanic practitioners. This training or, or what I'm going to be offering through these episodes will actually offer you how to be a shamanic practitioner. I think that's a beautiful thing to be, to aspire to. Um, it, I think hopefully today I'm going to entice you into, you know, why I think that's a, a beautiful thing to aspire to. But um, I, nor I think most people should never call themselves a shaman until their community calls them that. And it's it's very important so as to to recognize a, a kind of natural hierarchy within this system. Okay. And so please don't think through this process again, that you are becoming a shaman or you're being initiated. Yes, you're initiated into your medicine, but medicine doesn't mean mastery. Medicine is, um, you know, something that we access through again, our wounds and processing the experiences that we've had in our lifetimes. But mastery is, is a whole different, um, whole different process. So now we've gone through the sort of the way longer background exploration um, than I intended. Uh, we're going to get to the actual intention of this episode, which is to offer what I call building the ground, um, really exploring philosophy and some principles that are really critical for engaging with everything that's going to be offered beyond this point. Um, how we believe, how we think, how we engage with reality makes all the difference in terms of the world that we live in. And there are very particular beliefs and perspectives um, from the lineages that I work with and within that um, this is a hard one because you don't have to believe these things. You do not have to uh, instantaneously say, yes, I, I want to you know, align with this because these are beliefs. They are not um, truths in the sense that I can't offer you some, you know, empirical data set to say this is absolutely the way that people are and the way the world is and and you can, you know, bet your life on it. They are beliefs that you could actually walk out into the world and you could probably find an equal amount of data or, or feedback um, to suggest that they are true and then equal amount to suggest that they're completely not true. And so it's about building a worldview and and having a perspective that you want to have, I suppose. And this is how I engage with these beliefs is that I recognize the consequences of believing them and believe those consequences to be very, very positive in my life. And I recognize the consequences to believing maybe the opposite of these uh, perspectives and recognize that I don't I don't want those consequences in my life. Right. Um, in, you know, as I've sort of already offered, we can believe that we don't belong on this planet and that we're actually aliens and, you know, we don't, nothing here wants us and it's trying to get rid of us, right? And you can go out into the world and find tons of evidence to support that perspective. Now, what's the consequence of it is that we are going to have a particular quality of relationship with this world, um, a particular quality of relationship with ourselves, with each other, right? When we don't feel like we belong and, and I'm not okay with that. I'm not willing to live in that experience. 
and our beliefs are up to us and you know we we get to decide them and i think that's kind of fun and also i think a lot of the time we're really not looking at our beliefs and and not um, practicing kind of metacognition in terms of thinking about our thinking and so i wanted to offer this episode as just an opportunity for you to think about your thinking and think about the consequences of your thinking and your beliefs okay but these are principles that um, again are very they're they're just foundational to this entire approach okay um, they're not maybe necessarily always easy to swallow, but they really are important to um, to engage with. Okay, so the first one is that, and maybe I'm putting the first one up front because it's the hardest one, is that we are lucky to be here. This is a foundational belief in this approach and in both shamanic and Buddhist beliefs that uh, the human birth, the human life, is a very blessed life. Now. I know that instantly your brain is, I don't know, but I'm going to assume that instantly your brain is going to be finding all the reasons why this life is is awful, right? And there's so many painful things that happen and holy shit, I live a privileged existence and I recognize that. And I recognize that many, many, many people in the world do not um, and that this existence is exceptionally hard. However... When we believe that it is either a punishment or a random, awful chance that we got born as a human being, that is going to put a particular quality, sort of, um, you know, place a particular lens on the way that we view our existence, the way we view other people, that is, it doesn't actually allow us to step into a soul-initiated state. Because there will always be a quality of resistance to being here because we think, no, you know, being a human, this is hard and it's awful and this world is against us and, you know, nothing goes the way we want it to. That is always going to be, in a sense, kind of in our back pocket so we can pull it out and say, look, I didn't want to be here anyways and I don't I don't like this life, right? And it's it's this is not a belief that I would throw at someone who's, you know, in the midst of an acute suffering or going through something horrendous, right, to go, you know, happy wash the whole process and say, yeah, no, no, it's so great and you're blessed to be here. But I imagine that probably within your own life right now, there are hard things and there are beautiful things and there are, you know, very challenging experiences that you're moving through and also very... Um, meaningful things that are occurring right and is there space in your existence to just ask yourself you know what is the consequence of thinking that this life is a beautiful blessed experience um, and all beings in other dimensions and other lifetimes want to be in this experience um, it, does that contribute in a positive way to the way that you meet your life or vice versa? If you do not believe that and you, you think, in fact, that, you know, there's there's no innate sort of benefit to being a human being, um, what's the consequences of that? And only you can ask these these metacognitive kind of questions. But I do think that they're they're vitally important for our process. I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but um, maybe as a sort of anecdote, when I lived in San Francisco, my teacher and I, she would take me to uh, San, or Golden Gate Park often, and we would do ceremonies there. And it was the most bizarre experience. It's something totally trippy always happened every time. But one time we actually were down on um, 
on Ocean Beach, right at the end of Golden Gate Park. And we were doing ceremony, and it was the first time that I'd really clued in to what was happening in the sort of um, initial processes for preparing for ceremony, where she would be either digging a circle. This time she was digging a circle in the sand for our ceremony. Sometimes she would use different herbs or different materials to sort of create the circle. And um, I was a very bad student, and so I think a lot of the time I didn't ask questions. But at this point, I did ask a question, and I was like, why are we doing this? Like, I sometimes would just sort of follow her lead and go along with things. But this time I really wanted to know, and she said, when you open up a ceremonial space, and you either do that, you know, through uh, your intention, through the lighting of a fire um, or a flame, which which says, you know, here I'm I'm focusing on what is occurring in this experience, but you're also opening your consciousness into a sort of ceremonial mindset, ceremonial space, you become very attractive to energies and beings in other dimensions. And she said that in all other dimensions where they do not have a physical body they do not suffer the way that we do. They do not feel hunger. They do not feel sadness. But they also do not feel love or joy or fulfillment. She said, when you open up the space, all they want to do is come and attach to you. Because all they want is to feel what it's like to be a human. Here we are thinking, as I mentioned before, you know, that when we get to heaven and everything's beautiful and wonderful, then we're going to be happy. But when you really think about that, I mean, in a, a relative sense, you can't know happiness if you don't know sadness. And this um, third dimensional incarnation is considered so lucky, especially to be a human, where we have self-consciousness and a, a sort of sense of our separate will um, that everybody wants to connect to us, right? And it really, it really drove home this idea that this life... Um, is a beautiful and blessed life. And to be honest, at that point in my life, I was suffering and I was going through some stuff I didn't want to go through. And it really, it didn't make me, um, I, I guess, feel horrible to have someone say, no, actually, even though you're suffering, this is a this is a good life. It actually provided some space in my experience, you know, to frame it um, first from, a, I guess, a sort of generous perspective. So that's the first principle. Again, I cannot, this is, this is not about indoctrination or me saying this is the way things are and you have to believe it. It is completely up to you whether this, these principles and ideas resonate with you, um, but think deeply about them. I, I, a loss, a profound loss of philosophy, I think, has occurred in our civilization um, due to scientism and actually science not being rooted in its foundation, which was always meant to be philosophy. And I think we've gotten... Um, into uh, really a particular type of thinking. You know, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, he's a, a Nobel Prize winning economist. He says, you know, we have two ways of thinking. We can do t type one thinking or type two thinking. Type one is reactionary and like um, it's instant and, and, and quite easy and it's, it's really not very energy intensive. And it tends to, I think, come largely from the left hemisphere. And it's just like, nope, yes, nope, yes, judge, don't like, like, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a fairly simple kind of thinking, right? And then um, type two thinking is really energy intensive. It's very slow. It takes a lot of... Um, work basically to think this way and it's it's that's where metacognition happens you know when we really pause and go whoa what is my thinking actually contain and, and instead of reacting to the world we we go into a state of responding and so it, 
just encourage you to think about it that way. I hope that doesn't seem um, patronizing at all, but it is, I think, I don't think we get taught or encouraged to think deeply about things. And I mean, look at the the rapid nature of our civilization right now. We, we often don't have time. So I would propose or request of you, you know, to take some time and think about these things, okay? Um, so as I mentioned, the secondary principle um, I've already sort of touched upon, but it's this, just this idea, again, that echoes through Buddhism, um, but also through shamanism, that pain is an inevitable part of this experience in the third dimension. Okay, Suffering is optional. Um, medicine is possible when we engage with our pain and our wounds and our suffering, um, but we can't get past pain. There, This is just the reality. And in fact, that reality provides a kind of containment for our experience here. You know, it, it's, it, it bookends our experience in a sense. You know, when we make death a reality, birth a reality, you know, sickness a reality, it's like it, those, it, we can engage with those realities as... Um, unfortunate and and unwanted events or we can engage with them as okay here's the framework this is what we're working with right we're going to spend a lot of time talking about death um, in this process and um, understanding it through through these these lenses and this within this worldview um, but again you know when we try to pretend or or assume that we don't have to have these these bookends or these containers on our human experience, we lose out so much um, from what they actually teach us. Uh, sickness, death, uh, transformation, you know, unknowns, uh, unexpected events are, are often, you know, initiatory experiences. And when we are caught in saying, nope, these shouldn't be happening and I want to get rid of this in my life and I should never have this pain, we, we don't get to initiate. So pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional medicine is possible. Uh, number three is that we live in a completely conscious world. Okay. Um, shamanism is informed or, or reflects a, a perspective, a panpsychist perspective called animism. And animism is basically the principle that everything is and has consciousness. It just doesn't manifest or express itself in the form that a human consciousness expresses itself, right? So um, even though we can't necessarily speak the language of trees, though some people can, and I certainly, they speak to me all the time and I feel like I can speak to them and I'm heard by them and and welcomed by them um uh, we we can't we, we can't say that they don't have consciousness just because we don't have the sort of perceptual apparatus to perceive that quality or type of of consciousness and you know I, I find it really interesting I think last year sometime Scientific American was putting out all these articles about panpsychism all, uh, all of a sudden, you know, and, and recognizing like, oh, we've been trying to find consciousness as a, an emergent property in the human brain, as if the brain makes consciousness. And I mean, the panpsychist perspective, um, really simplistically, suggests instead that actually everything is consciousness. Everything is made of consciousness, vibrating at different frequencies, at different energy levels, and and it's like it's like if you imagine you know you take water right water can be changed into ice into liquid into vapor it's all water it's just at different forms right and and the animist and panpsychist perspective is really that 
consciousness is is everything. Everything around us is consciousness. Everything that we are is consciousness. And in fact, our brain is not creating consciousness so much as it's perceiving it like a radio. It's receiving the signals of consciousness that are moving around and through us and are us all the time. Okay. And so when, you know, when you think about the application of these prin- this principle, you know, nothing is inanimate. Everything has is a person, right? Everything has a personality and everything um, can be in, and, and must be, I think, engaged with, you know, in as a, a person. I had this, you know, bizarre experience in my early trainings with my teacher where um, she was actually teaching me how to do some clearing with moxibustion with um, compressed mugwort. And I was I had finished the the practice and then I was going to put the mugwort out and I was like jamming it into this metal plate that um, we were supposed to put it out on. And I could feel her tense up and I could tense up too, uh, or I did tense up. And I was like, what was this feeling? And she's like, the mugwort doesn't like that, you know? And and it, I almost laughed at that moment because I knew that, that that's what was happening. I could feel that it did not like the way that I was treating it. Now, you know, it's a plant, it's a, a, a you know, dried plant. One could say that it has no quote unquote life left in it, but it is consciousness. And in the shamanic tradition, we are aspiring to um, listen to and respect and and respond to consciousness in all things. Um, this is, you know, the it's, it's like the most beautiful way of existing, I think, in the universe is where we see things as wisdom. Everything has wisdom in it. Everything is imbued with this conscious wisdom. And, you know, consciousness not as just existing in a human mind makes it feel like a just such an alive system. It is such an alive system to live within, right? Um, and so we, we, through this belief um, and, and perspective, we can put ourselves back into uh, a sense, in a sense, a continuum with all of existence, right? A continuum that feels and senses and it has wisdom and it has awareness and it's, it's different, right? We don't always speak the language of all of these, these levels of consciousness, but um, that we, we see it that way. We see it as, as imbued with, with meaning, I suppose, innately because it has consciousness and we will engage with the world in a very different way. So um, that's just an idea. It's up to you. I have a very clear awareness that every houseplant in my house have a, has a totally different personality. I've always been this way. I didn't know that other people weren't this way, that they didn't see that, you know, tables have personalities and rocks have personalities and mountains have personalities and they all are talking to you all the time. But I, I really do think, um, you know, there's a beautiful podcast. I can't remember the guy's name. It's called the Emerald Podcast. And he has an episode called um, Animism is Normative Consciousness, I think is the title of it. It's brilliant. Go give it a listen. But it's just talking about the fact that like for 99% of human evolution, we lived in an animated world. And then, you know, the Enlightenment came along, the, the Western colonial mind came along and said, no, actually, the world is a mess and we're here to clean it up and control it and manage it. And we we stepped away from this. But this is like so recent, you know, for however many potentially up to two and a half million years of our evolution. But um, we have been engaging with a living world. Right. And and what's the cost and the benefit of of reclaiming that perspective and living that way and what would it bring to your life, you know, or 
if you prefer to see the world as as inanimate objects, right? What does that create in your life and and what might be lost through that process? So so principle four is um, because we're in this kind of web of consciousness, this continuum of consciousness uh, that is is interacting with everything, our minds are part of this consciousness. And we are living in a participatory universe. And this is one of my favorite, I suppose, statements, you know, that we live in a participatory universe. What that means is that our minds are actually creating and influencing the entire world around us, right? That there is no division between the consciousness within our minds and the consciousness that is all of reality. And so we... The, the outcome of this is how we use our minds, how we think, what we think, um, you know, wh what kind of perspectives we hold actually influences the world around us. It influences everything around us. And, um, you know, there's a, a teaching that as, as we gain greater alignment, so again, that's thinking, feeling, seeing, being, doing, all the same thing. As we gain greater alignment um, and clarity through our path, the, the power, so the power that we have to influence the rest of existence um, with our consciousness, with our mind interacting with that conscious field, uh, it increases. And so as you walk along this path and as you go through initiatory processes or you really do your spiritual work, I suppose, um, we actually have to be really sure not to be thinking thoughts about um, what we don't want to happen, right? We want to think about things we want to be happening. We don't want to think damaging or harmful or violent thoughts um, because, you know, because of this participatory nature and, and existence that we we occupy, um, our intentional energy, you know, the the way that we use our mind is so important, you know, and in shamanic, shamanic practice, we say, you know, that why we do something is very, very, very important because it's not just our actions in the world that is is creating an impact, but the way that we think, the way we use our mind is actually influencing everything around us, okay? It's ex it's influencing the expression of the world. Um, and we do this through what we visualize uh, of and, and how we think and what we imagine. We're going to explore this at length, you know, but imagination is very, very important in, these, in this work. Um, but just the perspective that your mind is is a really important part of um, of all of existence and how you use your mind is is an essential thing to investigate okay so um, principle five I, and I alluded to this earlier on is that in this process and this comes directly from the Buddhist lineage from Shambhala in this process of uh, initiation, which, you know, there's so many words that we could use to, to label this process. We can call it self-actualization, self-realization. Um, you know, some people maybe call it enlightenment, though I think that's a, a, a different experience. But um, coming into the, the soul self, maturity, okay? Um, the intention of going through this process is not actually just what we get out of it. Okay. And this is, is un I think, unique to um, Buddhist traditions. Again, I, I haven't encountered this with my um, other shamanic teachers from other lineages. I, I worked with or studied with a um, holy woman from Tibet 
for a while who was Buddhist and and she really emphasized this. She was also a shamanic sound healer. Um, and so her practice was really informed by this principle. But the principle is that, you know, it is possible, I think, that we can go on to this path and say, I want to be initiated so that I feel better or that I know what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. And, and you know, I, I mentioned that before, that that is one of the things we gain from this process. And that's, it's understandable, you know, and, and quite frankly, I would say that I got first onto the path um, thinking that it was going to make me feel special. I think that might have been my teacher tricking me um, because, you know, I'd, I'd already been informed by Buddhist principles, but yeah, I felt I felt very special, you know, to have a, a, a Bolivian medicine woman like call me up out of the blue and say, I'm your teacher and, and spirits told me that you have to study with me. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm so special. Um, and, you know, I, I really did think that it was going to make me feel really good about myself, you know, and shortly found out that that was not the case. But uh, at some point, I also, I think, returned to the roots of my Buddhist practice and the the principle of, of what's called the Bodhisattva Oath. And the Bodhisattva Oath is a commitment that you do your healing work and you go through initiation processes or awakening processes, not for your singular benefit as an individual, but so that you can utilize everything that you gather, you know, sometimes what's called the merit in those processes and practices, or, you know, the, the awakening, whatever beauty you experience through your journey, you do that so you can be in service to other beings, um, all beings. And once you take the, the Bodhisattva oath or just accept this as a principle in your own experience, um, you also commit that in the Buddhist tradition, there is a possibility of reaching perfect enlightenment. And then when you die, you go into a, a state that's called the bardo state. And you you can choose to not come back and be a human being if you want. You can go, you know, bliss out in nirvana and have a sweet old time. But when you've taken the Bodhisattva Oath, you continuously get reborn here to have suffering again, to go through the pain and everything else. But because you want to stay here until all beings everywhere have been freed from suffering. And I, I think, you know, we, we when we commit to this oath, we really are committing to the willingness to stay um, and work towards this liberation, you know, and um, we're not aspiring to perfect enlightenment. And, and I know that there are people who can achieve that. I'm definitely not one. I can't remember. I read this somewhere that they think, you know, it's like, one in three billion people or something can can have spontaneous three million people. I can't remember what it was. Spontaneous realization and perfect enlightenment, and then they're just like out and done. I'm not that person. I, I assume most of us are not. Um, if you are, that's rad, and I, I congratulate you in this lifetime. But the rest of us, I think, we're going through a slog, you know, and I think on the spiritual journey, if we do not make it about someone else, and this was a primary teaching from Chagyang Trumpa, who was really the head of the Shambhala lineage when he brought it to North America and Europe from Tibet. Um, he said that the thing that is going to undo the West, it will be the demise of the West, um, is something that he called spiritual materialism. And I've referenced this on previous podcasts, but I would say that spiritual materialism, you know, is... is defined as as when the ego actually uses our spiritual practice uh, not to annihilate or transcend the ego, 
but to actually enhance the ego's sense of importance and sense of control. So we use our spiritual practice, you know, maybe we use meditation as a way to go, look, I meditate and I'm so uh, aware and and you're a dipshit and, you know, I'm much, much better than you, right? It, we can use um, our spiritual practice as a, an enhancement for our, our egotism, right? When I, th- this is my experience, when we commit to um, the path of the Bodhisattva and saying that in, ha- in fact our, our realization is only so we can benefit other beings, it's like this, this safety um, on the process so that we don't go into um, the process being that of increasing our own um, ego, right? And it's, it's so easy to do. And I think you can probably look at the world around us and, and see how spirituality has been um, corrupted and co-opted by the ego so that, you know, we're using it to get more attention, get more money, get more famous, get more whatever. And, and I mean, I, I do think that people can be well-known and, and still be absolutely aligned people and practitioners, um, and certainly know some, but I know also of people whose fame and notoriety actually derailed them, you know, and, and their, their spiritual practices made them almost separate from life. Right. And, and I, I love this idea, you know, that, that we don't do this for ourselves. We do it so that we can better be there for other beings and so that we can keep serving. And, and really it's a way of maintaining humility, staying away from our, our self-importance on this path. And, and I think is also really beautiful for the entire system. So again, I encourage you to think of this as you don't have to believe this by any means. You don't have to think it's about other people, but what's the cost? What's the benefit? What are the consequences of either believing or not believing those perspectives? Okay. Um, so we have just a couple more. Um, number six is delightfully metaphysical, I think. Um, but that there is an understanding from shamanic belief um, that our consciousness, and I can say from personal experience, this is this is real. Um, but again, it's just going to be a belief until you've had an experience of it. That our consciousness can abide and interact with many dimensions, not just this one. Okay, um, you know we're here having an experience in the material world, the third dimension. Um, but I, you can most likely see how we can go into the fourth dimension, and this is where um, the energy of imagination and emotion uh, sort of dance about and where time can become actually a relative variable. Um, and then in the fifth dimension, we can go there, and people talk about ascension into the 5D and stuff, um, which is a very nice idea. I still really like being in the third dimension. But the fifth dimension is, is where we can completely transcend polarity um, and our consciousness can reunify with the universal experience. I think we go in there, we come out, we go in, come out. We're still third dimensional. I don't think we're going anywhere if we ascend. Um, But in each of these dimensions, and there are, again, many others, my teacher could exist in nine dimensions. She could communicate with beings in nine nine different dimensions and actually travel to those dimensions. Um, I don't know how many there are beyond that point. But in each of these dimensions, there are beings um, and I suppose what you consider to be sort of non-material energies that we can interact with. And these energies are capable of assisting us, or they are capable of derailing us, of playing really wicked jokes on us um, as we move along our path, okay? Now, 
this is it's it's a tricky area because um, again, as I mentioned before, in the sort of etymology of the word shaman, which is she who walks in the dark, she who is a a bridge. My teacher would always say to me, you know, you are a bridge, you don't live there. Um, meaning, you know, you don't try to go and live in the other dimensions. You're not moving around there all the time. But that the the person who has an authentic um, calling into the shamanic practice. Um, and again, I know this it may be a bit confusing. You can be a shamanic practitioner. You can't necessarily choose to be on the path to be a shaman. Uh, you can't call yourself a shaman before your world doesn't call you that. Um, there's like funny kind of rules, I suppose. But um, if you are called to the path of, a, of being a shaman, you have the potential to be able to communicate between dimensions. Okay. And you know, a shamanic practitioner or a shaman can, on your behalf, talk to those energies, call your allies back. Um, there are really uh, simple and, and accessible ways of connecting with these energies, building allyship with uh, supportive energies and and um, guides and whatnot. And we're going to be doing some of those practices in this process. Um, but it's, you know... When we explore the relationship with these beings and their gifts, um, I think it really expands our understanding of what it is to be human. You know, we we are not limited to this dimension or the experiences within it. Um, and I mean, you look at our materialistic world, we've diminished the importance of dream time, right? It's just, oh, it's just your brain cleaning itself. That's all it is. And granted, I agree that sometimes that might be what it is, but um, I also have a ton of visitors in my dreams and I know they're visitors they are not my consciousness and they're telling me things and guiding me in particular ways and if we don't I think broaden the scope in terms of how we conceptualize of the human experience to include um, many dimensions just like broadening the scope to include many expressions of consciousness um, again we become very myopic very materialistic even more so um, and, and I, you know, we, we lose this sense of like awe and potential and, and wonder and magic, you know, and, and humility again, that we don't know, we don't know what we don't know. And maybe our senses just have not been, um, attuned to a particular level so that we can perceive these dimensions. I mean, that's, I'm pretty sure I, I can perceive some of them, but not all of them. Uh, and I certainly can't go there on will. Uh, but my teacher could, and it was because of her development. So this is maybe just about offering a sort of wider perspective on where your consciousness can abide and what the world is is like. I actually was trying to describe this to my five-year-old, my poor five-year-old, who like sometimes when I'm telling him bedtime, bedtime stories, I know that it, like his mind is like, I can't, I can't take this, mom, because we were talking about... Um, <laughs> Oh, oh, poor kid. We were talking about how your brain is a radio, basically, and it's picking up all these signals. And and I was saying to him, you know, that there's there's radio waves going through the air all the time, right? We just, we can't pick them up because we don't have the right apparatus. And I mean, he, he seriously turned over and looked at me and he was like, like they're going through me right now? And I, I was, I mean, he, I think he found it really exciting because like kid brains freaking love that. And I'm, my brain loves it. And because it's, it's awe inspiring and it's wild and it, it makes me realize that I don't know, you know, and, and not knowing is very, very good for us. 
Um, but I think he had a really hard time sleeping after that because he was sort of like, well, what else is going through me? This is ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, we don't see what a dog sees. We don't hear what a bird hears. And, and so widen, widen your, the potential. And, and this actually has a, a very significant, um, contributing effect to kind of widening the sense of potential for our own identities, right? Which is really necessary for the initiatory process. So Last one, friends, and then we'll be done and I will stop talking at you. So the last principle is that the process of initiation, um, it, it really is is going to be defined in your own experience by a, a few different um, capacities. And we're going to explore these capacities at, at length. But one of them is patience. Okay. The other one is bravery. And there's other ones, but those are the two I'll mention right now because the principle is that this, this process is going to have its way with you. And your job is you don't get to control it, right? This is actually life saying, okay, time to go on to the next phase. Time for you to transform. Time for you to be called into a, a more um, aligned expression of yourself. You know, in the uh, the shamanic tradition of, of the Toltecs, you know, they say that the, the whole drive of the universal force is to increase complexity and to build consciousness, right? And so life wants us to move into greater consciousness. And that's what a soul initiation is. It's moving from patterned and habitual ways of being in the world that we learned in childhood, um, patterned and habitual ways of thinking into full awake awareness in this moment and, and meeting life as it happens and, and greater consciousness as to how we are being and how what kind of world we want to be in, right? So life wants this of us. It It's driving us to it and towards it all the time, right? But we don't get to, um, we don't get to decide how it happens, okay? And this is, um, you know, the, the great expression, I suppose, of humility in the process and patience and bravery that, that we're not in control. We are here to respond and to learn to respect the wisdom that is inherent within this process and within all things. And it is my particular perspective, I suppose, that, and I share this with many, many, many other people I know, that, you know, we're not the smartest things here. And we are actually assuming sort of godlike roles with our godlike technology, you know, in this in this era of human civilization. And we lose so much because we're always trying to control the process. And again, as I mentioned before, all we keep doing is making the same shit happen because we're not we're not um, open to mystery. We're not open to what we don't know, you know. And so this is, I think, a very important principle that don't think that this is about you, you know, doing going on a linear journey from A to B and controlling the process and saying, oh, well, I'd like to, you know, have it go this way. It will have its way with you. And everything that I will be offering in terms of practices and, and experiences is not about you making it go the way you want, but about preparing you for the journey. And, and that's, I think, the ultimate task of, of good teachings and good preparation is it's not about making, you know, controlling it. It's about learning to respond to it. Okay. Um, so that's it. These, uh, we're in a great transition. We're in a great transformative moment in time and nothing is certain. And, and I'm, I'm certain that nothing is certain. 
and I think I, I've shared this on on the podcast before, but the first shaman that I ever encountered, you know, he, he met me at a time when I was like stuffing my closet with Mars bars and white rice because I was certain, that, you know, after the apocalypse happened that, and cigarettes, That's like, I didn't even smoke, but I was like, oh, everybody wants cigarettes. So I, you know, I was, I was insane with fear and worry about what might happen, you know, and he read this in me and he said to me, um, you know, you need to calm yourself down. I can't remember how he phrased it, but he was like, you have to release this fear because you have to know that this is a transformation that is inevitable. Uh, we have to go through this chaos. It's been foretold. It's been prophesied by many, many, many lineages. And and people have known that this is what consciousness would do on the planet. This is not a mistake. It's not a problem to be fixed. It is a process to be engaged with and responded to um, consciously. And he said, you know, 77,000 times um, we have tried to do this and we've gotten to this point, consciousness, we, um, of, of, you know, attempting to navigate this, this transformation into the, the self-aware um, consciousness that can be the, the fully articulated individual and know itself to be unified with all that is. Um, and he said, we've failed 77,000 times. We blow up the planet and, you know, nuclear war happens or something, whether it's this planet or some other planet. And he said, it's okay. We have to keep going through this until we get it right. And he said, I think we're going to get it right this time. Uh, but he said, you know, nothing certain. So I do, I, I, I'm, I'm a realistic optimist and I do think that we are going to get it. Um, because I have to feel that way in order to, to engage with the world. But either way, it's such an exciting thing to be living through and to be sharing with all of you. And I more than anything, just hope that what will be offered here is going to be helpful and feel like um, kind of we're all holding hands as we walk through this crazy tornado of, of change and mass transformation and come out on the other side, clarified of our fear and our our, you know, old baggage and, and all the things that we, we don't want to be holding on to anymore and, and our, and come out reunited with the world that we truly are and always have been unified with. So thanks for being here and, uh, onwards we go inwards and onwards. I think that was the motto of the podcast, wasn't it? Inwards and onwards. Oh, um, sorry. One more thing. I totally forgot. I forgot to mention about the audio uh, track that you'll see on the podcast this week as well. So again, these are the practices that I consider to be very, es totally essential on this path and, and through this process and things that really helped me um, and continue to help me in my personal experience. And this week's track is an exploration of a seated meditative practice. Um, I have been practicing seated meditation for a very long time. I think it is life-changing in, in every single way. I recognize that it's not particularly fashionable, I think, within the, the spiritual community. I hear a lot of people, see a lot of people talking about how it's somehow patriarchal and oppressive to sit and <laughs> relate to the mind in this way. And I, all the power to you if you have that position. Um, I certainly agree that moving meditation and other mindfulness-based practices where we are bringing our awareness into what we're engaging with or doing in our world are beautiful. But I think that the the purpose of a seated meditative practice, as I experience it, it really is, you know, a, a much harder um 
process of, of training the mind, really, the training the mind to stay, to be our um, servant, to, to do the bidding of the witness or soul self as opposed to the mind running us. And I think that that's exceptionally important, especially as we live in an environment and society that has increasingly um, effective technology at understanding your mind and your thoughts and your desires probably before you do. And so I think that the, the meditative work is is very difficult because we've got a lot going on and, and we feel like sitting down for this amount of time um, feels like a bit of a waste. But I think it's incredibly important if you want to have clarity moving through your life. So um, what this track is, is you'll hear an intro from me along with some really beautiful music from Brent. And then um, it'll all the the sound will go off and then you'll have a 30 minute silence um, in which to do your practice. And then there'll be what's called a dedication at the end or a prayer to close the, the practice. So my hope is that this will encourage you to sit down and have a practice. I do generally recommend to people to not do like five or 10 minute meditation practices. My own experience with it is it takes about 15 minutes before the the chatter in my head actually gets quiet. And then I have, you know, in a half hour practice, I'll have 15 minutes of really beautiful awareness of, of taking my seat in that witness position and being able to watch the mind think, but not getting engaged or hooked by it. So, um, so yeah, I, I know it's a big ask 30 minutes, you know, we think oh, I have no time to do this, but pulling, you know, a page from Pema Chodron's playbook where she says meditation is, you know, the only thing, and I would agree with her, the only thing in, in life that by doing it, it actually, it, it takes time and it makes time because the more focused and clear we are in our world and, and as we're moving through our days, um, I think the more time it actually feels like we have because we're not uh, distracted or overwhelmed by the, the chatter that's going on in our head. So I hope you will enjoy it. And that is really it. And I will see you here next time. The Knowing is an IntelliKey production and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. All music, editing and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Mm -hmm.